Good morning, everybody. My name is Shing, and I serve here with the international student ministry known as Life Among the Nations. And I'm glad to bring the word to you this morning. As we get started this morning, any parents who wish to have their children participate in some age-appropriate teaching of the Gospel Project, you can release your children now to the patio where we have some volunteers who are ready to receive them. But if you want your kids to stay in here, that is also wonderful. And this morning, we are going to be in the final chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. You can find that on page 46 of the Blue Bibles in front of you. But to start our time this morning, I just want you to think back just a little bit to all the preceding chapters of Exodus. And as you look back at the beginning of chapter 1, you just think back there. Do you recall what the situation was like? At that time, the people of Israel were faced with dark days. We see that the people of Israel have become slaves in Egypt. It was a seemingly hopeless situation, but there was a glimmer of hope. And that even under oppression, God was good to his promise and that the people of Israel continued to multiply. And God then continued to be true to his word by delivering his people through shocking means and raising up a deliverer in Moses. And as the recounting of the story of Israel goes on, we see God again triumphing and showing his glory, making himself known and saving his people from Egypt, and then entering into a relationship with them, providing them with the way to live for their good and for his glory. And even more, when we get to chapter 25, God started giving Israel instructions for the tabernacle so that God would be able to dwell with his people. And towards the end of these instructions, we read in Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Moving forward a few chapters to the incident with the golden calf, where Israel had seemingly forgotten all that the Lord accomplished in rescuing them from Egypt. Instead, they decided to make an idol to worship because they wanted something to give them security, comfort, and direction, and they wanted that on their own terms and under their control. But then in chapters 33 and 34, God continues showing his glory, the grace and mercy, and through his reconciliatory work and restores his relationship with his people. And then last week, we walked through chapters 35 to 39 where all of the necessary materials and components and parts for the tabernacle are being manufactured. We see the whole journey from the collection of raw materials and then the processing in the beams, frames, furnishings, and decor. And we see the craftsmen putting in the work and producing all the things needed in the construction plans. As Pastor Tad made clear for us last week, God is extremely gracious to make us a place fit for worship. And little by little, 
the hopeless situation that we saw in Exodus chapter one is being erased and God is making himself known. And from our vantage point reading Exodus, we see his glory crescendoing. Now we arrive in Exodus 40. We're left with a little bit of tension in the story of Israel. And yes, we enter into the final stages of construction of God's holy house, the tabernacle, with Moses now receiving these final instructions. But what happens after things are complete? Will God indeed do as he said back in Exodus chapter 29? Will there be an exclamation point at the end of this crescendo? And from Israel's perspective, they had sinned against God in constructing the golden calf and caused a broken relationship. And there might be some apprehension in regards to what you know, might happen after tabernacle is complete, thinking back on what, you know, what they did. But also, their experience so far of God has been of the cloud coming down to Mount Sinai or of Moses' glowing face. They had not yet experienced a close-up full manifestation of God. Will now be the time when God is actually with them? Will God fulfill the promise that he had made? Before we get too far ahead, let's start reading the passage together. And as we read, I would love for you to try to maybe count in your mind, or if you like to count with your hands, you can do that too. Uh, how many commands you see here in this for, first portion of the text? I'll try to help break it down as we read, so don't get too worked up if this is too much multitasking for you. Uh, I know it's a little overwhelming, I get that. But let's pick up now here at the beginning of Exodus chapter 40. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. This is five. And you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. I'm at seven if you're trying to keep track. All right, we're going to restart now. Okay, we're going to go back to one. This is the second set of instructions. This is verse nine. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. And then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water And put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them, 
as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And here at the beginning of the last chapter of Exodus, we see Moses taking on the role of contractor, maybe project manager, that's a little better term. All the components are ready to go, and he is receiving his last instructions from God on how to bring the tabernacle together. The instructions that God gives are very specific. There's a particular order in how to construct the tabernacle. First, the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was to be built, and the order of operations goes from inside to out. Or if you want to think of it more spatially, from the west side of the tabernacle to the east, from the parts made with precious gold to those that are made with bronze. And at the innermost part of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, which if you recall from Brandon's sermon, is a box that contained the law, Aaron's staff, and the manna bread. And on top of the Ark is the mercy seat, which in Exodus 25, 22 says, there I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Then moving on to the next layer, we see the next most holy place and the objects that are placed there include the lampstand, which we heard about uh, even last week and how that points to the tree of life in the garden of Eden. And from there, we move out of the tabernacle itself and into the outer court where the altar and basin are located. Now, as this is going on, I'm personally imagining this kind of like Ikea furniture, right? Easy, straightforward, seven-step process, pictorial diagram, and I'm done. But we see that Moses is not done after the construction. Who is actually given another seven steps to follow after that? The next seven are given in order to set the tabernacle apart, anointing it so that the tabernacle and all its furnishings were dedicated to God. In this process of anointing, not only was the tabernacle and its furnishings set apart and dedicated to God, the men who would serve there are also included. And we see that starting in verse 12, how Moses was to ordain Aaron and the other priests. If you have noticed, we've made much about the number seven. And hopefully as you're counting, you counted seven. And counted the first and second set of instructions and each of those are seven. And then in a moment, We'll see how Moses responded to these instructions in a sevenfold manner. What is the deal with the number seven? It's a good question. And seven is symbolic in the near uh, Eastern culture, the Israelite culture, because it communicates a sense of completeness or wholeness. You think about in Exodus 22, the command for animals to be seven days old before they are to be brought before the Lord for sacrifice. Or even the lampstand that we have mentioned now in the past couple weeks and its seven stems. 
Another example is in scripture include Jesus making seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, or Joshua marching around Jericho for seven days, and afterwards the seven priests were to blow seven trumpets. But more significantly, we see the number seven from the very beginning of the Bible in creation, that the Lord created in six days, and he rested on the seventh. So it would seem that not only the elements of the tabernacle point to Eden where God once dwelt with man, and that's something we have discussed in prior sermons, but even the final instructions here point to that former reality. Everything about the tabernacle points to when God created and that it was good and that he was with his creation, with his people. And Israel would now hopefully experience that again. Hopefully what Israel would find to be true again as the tabernacle is completed is that through recreation, God would again be with his people. Now we just made a little bit of an audacious claim about what the seven instructions are pointing to. You might be wondering, how do we know we're not reading our own ideas upon this text? How, how, do you, how do we know we're not pulling something and just shoving it here? Is there any additional evidence that might help guide us towards making a right conclusion? I'm glad you asked. If you take a look back at the beginning portion of our text, look at the first words of the instruction that God gives to Moses, we read... On the first day of the first month. I'm sure some of you are like, what's significant about that, right? We probably skimmed over it as we were reading. In the same way, we might have skimmed over all these instructions because we've seen these things before. But if we slow down for a moment, what is the text actually saying? It's saying that it is New Year's Day. And for us, as we celebrate the new year, we see it as a chance to make resolutions. And why do we do that? Because the new year is like a new beginning, a fresh start. This is the same for Israel. This was the turning of a new leaf, the indication of something new, something great, something glorious. The language of a new year is similar to what God had spoken of in regards to the Passover, which was also sort of a new start for Israel. But this date, exactly one year after the exodus from Egypt, is another indication that the completion of the tabernacle is to be understood in the light of creation, a a recreation for Israel. It is the culmination of God's work when he brought his people out of Egypt. Now, his people would not be hopeless, they would not be stuck under a tyrannical ruler, but rather they would have God among them and they would be under his good rule. And as Moses received these last sets of instructions, now once all the construction would be complete, it would be indeed a sense of satisfaction, of a job well done, right? But as you can imagine, with this hint of recreation, 
the completeness, the finality, that goodness and the glory of God would come down, the anticipation of Moses and Israel must have been through the roof. But at the same time, you can sense the tension as well, right? Will it indeed happen? And if all these words are true, when will it happen? How will it happen? We all know the feeling of this, right? We purchase a, a home or a car, but it's not real until the keys are in our hand. We know that after taking a final exam that we have passed our class. We like to calculate that just to be sure, right? We know we passed. But until we receive the report card, we have a bit of anxiety in our stomach as to whether or not that is true. This is what Israel is feeling. Now let's continue on and see what Moses does these last set of directions for the tabernacle. And as we read, again, I'll, I'll make note and count the number of responses that uh, Moses makes. So this is in verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, put up its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord commanded Moses. That's one. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, set up the veil of the screen, and screen the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses to. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses for he put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's number five. And he put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offerings at the entrance of the tabernacle of tent of meeting and he offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's number six. And he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. Number seven. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. And this section of text shows us step by step that Moses followed God's instructions precisely. All the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted. There is no doubt left as to whether or not Moses followed God's instructions. And the tabernacle was put up as directed. 
the bases, the frames, the poles, the pillars, the coverings. Then the ark went into the Holy of Holies as the Lord commanded. And as the Holy of Holies is complete, you can sense the rising tension, right? Like, the Holy of Holies is complete. It's God coming down. And for movie fans, it's like watching something from Christopher Nolan. That God's oddly popular at the moment, right? But often in his movies, you hear this little tick, 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 tick of a clock going on in the background. His sound engineer or composer he works with, Hans Zimmer, right? He has a way of increasing this tension as well, the, the rising of the music. Even though Moses is doing exactly what the Lord has commanded with the tent of meeting, we're still left wondering when, if, how. Yes, you can sense that tick, tick, tick going on in the background, right? We then read that Moses goes to set up the bread, which was a constant reminder of God's provision to his people. He would go on to set up the lampstand, which is represented the tree of life, and then it's also just a representation of the fact that God is the source of life in the light of this world, and would he come down when that got put into place? When will God come down to be with his people? All the things are in the correct places. We're still left wondering. And you see this process keeps on repeating itself over and over again as we see in the text. The altar where the incense and prayers were offered were arranged. The altar for sacrifices were made. And then even the basin that represented the cleansing and purity that is required from God did not result in God coming down. Then we get to the last instruction to set up the screen or the fence on the gates of the court that's intended to show that God is holy and is set apart from sinners. This last piece was complete and put into place what would happen? I know you feel that tension, but we're gonna pause here for just one moment. Now I want us to think about some of these words that we have seen repeated seven times. If you notice in this section, seven times over, it says, as the Lord commanded This is not the main idea of this passage, but it is a point of emphasis here in this text, and I think worthwhile for us to sit here and just kind of stew on it just a little bit. It is unmistakable that Moses did exactly as the Lord said. His diligence in following the Lord, his obedience are very clear and such a marked contrast from early on in Exodus when Moses seemingly had objections and rebuttals to everything the Lord asked of him. And church, how great would it be if that were true of us, that we would dispense of our objections and complaints and follow as the Lord commanded? It would be silly to think that we would be able to be wise without looking to the Lord in obedience And it's exactly as God himself would say to Israel through Moses later on in Deuteronomy when he says, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. 
we should strive to live so that it would be like it is said of Moses who did all the Lord commanded of him. And how wonderful would it be if it were said, John, you did all the Lord commanded you. Or for Rennell, you did all the Lord commanded of you. Or for Jessica, you did all the Lord commanded you. But as we pursue obedience, we ought to pray that we would not do this out of a desire to earn our salvation or, or out of a desire to be able to dangle our accomplishments over somebody else. Instead, let our motivation stem simply from knowing that the Lord is good and that these efforts bring him glory. Moses caught glimpses of the goodness of God and he was changed. And pray that as we work out our faith in the Lord and as we trust in his goodness that it would change us too and lead us to greater obedience. I would be remiss if I also didn't mention that as we strive for obedience to the Lord, that as we pray that it would be an ever-increasing reality, we ought to be coming alongside others in our church as well, helping to encourage and to exhort. This is not a solo project. So again, one more time. Let us live our lives in obedience to what God has commanded to us which is everything found in his word. Now we turn our attention back to the passage. I'm sure you're like, let's finish this, right? Feel that tension. In verse 33, we read these words. Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. Familiar sounding words, right? It seems that this phrase ties in with the theme of recreation. Let us recall the words of Genesis 2, as the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. God finished his work. So again, we're reminded that this tabernacle is a heavenly reality, a picture of heaven on earth. And as Hebrews 8 says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That is the tabernacle. And now the tabernacle, it was all done according to plan. The work is finished. And the only thing missing now is what everyone had been waiting for, the climactic moment that God in his glorious presence would come and be with his people and to bring in some sense Eden to earth to where man would live under God's good rule and where God would walk among his people. You can envision how this might have played out. Again, they would have felt the tension and the anticipation rising. Would this really be the moment? And if you like home renovation shows, this is like the moments leading up to the big reveal. What is going to happen when the owner arrives? Now see how this all plays out. Let's now read the last portion of our text. Verse 34. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here it is, at last, right? The climactic moment, the, the crescendo in the story. In accordance with his word, God comes to be with his people. God comes down in glory and dwells with his people. God is now indeed among his people. As one commentator from the 1600s stated, the glorious presence of God, which having been forfeited and lost, was now returned to them and took its habitation among them. It was no longer just the glimpses that they had previously experienced in the cloud and fire on top of Mount Sinai or the glimpses that they saw in their rescue at the Red Sea. Rather, this cloud, this visible manifestation of the invisible God, this radiant, spectacular light that reflected God's divinity came and settled. God truly made himself known as this cloud reflected every aspect of his being displayed his power, his providence, displayed his justice, his mercy, his truth, his holiness, his kindness. I don't have words to adequately express what Israel experienced, but it was unmistakable that God did indeed come down to be with his people as he had promised. And you can even imagine what it is like for Israel to have been there, lacking words as I do to a greater extent even. And not only was God among his people, he played an active role in guiding their life, guiding them to the promised land. When the cloud was lifted and taken up from the tabernacle, the people were to set out. And when it did not, they stayed. God would be with them constantly and be a protector and leader of his people. What a happy ending to all of this, isn't it? It's great. Except it's not quite the end of the story. The only snag in all of this is just mentioned very briefly in this last portion of the text. It's mentioned briefly that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. That stands out. It would seem incomprehensible that God's chosen leader of his people, his mediator to all of Israel, would be locked out. He does not get to go into the tent. Why would that be? Makes no sense. He is locked out because he is a sinner like you 
and die. And because we are sinners, we would be locked out too. We learn later on in the book of Leviticus that Moses is able to enter into the tent. But that is only after sacrifice is made and his sin atoned for. So even though the tabernacle was an important moment and the climax of this book, it was still just a small taste of something even greater that God had in store. And that something greater is Jesus. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, a life that was not deserving of punishment for sin, yet Jesus willingly took on the judgment for sin on a cross and announced, as it is recorded in John chapter 19, it is finished. And at this time, when Jesus says, it is finished, it indeed was completed once and for all, wiping away our sin once and for all, ensuring that we could experience recreation, that we would have a new life for all those who would trust in this work by faith. And for those who have been given new life, been reborn, we are not actually locked out. But instead, we too have received God's presence but even in a greater way than what the tabernacle was. Because God is in you. For believers in the gospel, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And one day, as it says in the book of Revelation, when Christ comes again to fully consummate all of this work that has already begun, you will worship God at his throne with no separation, and you will see his face. What a promise and hope that is, is it not? And for those who are maybe just considering now what the Bible is teaching and considering what does it mean to believe in Jesus, I want you to know that this hope of having God's presence, the hope of one day seeing God face to face, that can be yours too. And it can only be yours if you agree wholeheartedly that Jesus did finish the redemptive work on the cross on your behalf. It can only be yours if you agree that there is no other way for you to be saved from your sin other than through the blood that he shed on the cross. In church, I know these appeals can probably feel repetitive at times. You've heard it before, right? But don't let it be lost on you. Let this repetition stir all of us to think of people who we know who are lost and without this hope. We were once without hope. We have it now. Let's not keep it only to ourselves. But also, church, as we get near the end of our time this morning in Exodus 40, I want to encourage you to be thankful that God is with you. There's no building of a tabernacle necessary for God's presence to be with you. He has already, been, he has already given it to you in full. 
We should not only be thankful. We should be like Israel who looked longingly to God's presence with them. Let us all look to and seek earnestly the Holy Spirit who is in us. You might say that sounds absolutely absurd. How do we look and seek and draw near if the Spirit is in us and if he's not visible? I'm not talking about a physical thing that we do. It's a matter of orienting our hearts and our minds and all that we are towards him. And as we do so, let us look to him knowing that he is the one who helps us not live foolishly because he gives us wisdom. Let us look to him knowing, as it says in Romans 8, the only one who can put to death the deeds of the body is the Holy Spirit. Let us look to him knowing he is the one who makes sanctification possible. Let us look to him knowing that he is the one who helps us in our weakness. And let us look to him knowing that he is the one who helps us to even confess that Jesus is Lord. We would be going astray. We would be missing out on the fullness of joy if we did not look and turn to our God, who did not turn to our helper who is able to do all these things. And as in the words of the Apostle Paul, let us indeed be filled with the Spirit. So again, let us be filled indeed, and that we would do so by desiring him, and as we meditate, and as we live in obedience. And as we seek him in accordance with his word, we pray that God, through transformed lives and through this church, continue to make himself known to all. Let's pray. And Father, we just read of your goodness to your people in Exodus 40 and that you are with your people. And we are so grateful that for us as believers on this side of the cross that that reality is something even far more than what we could have imagined that you are with us, that the Holy Spirit is in us. And that Father, we would ask that we would seek you that we would desire you, and that, Father, you would change us and that we would reflect your glory to this world and that you would be praised. We ask that you would help us in this regard. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.